You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn Carlisle. In this series, we are following Jesus and learning what it means to take on His yoke. We are pressing into His promise of true life. All right, would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we uh, come before you with gratefulness in our hearts today. God, knowing that you are God who sees us, who loves us, and is still pursuing us through your son, Jesus. God, we ask that you would humble our hearts today to be able to receive your truths from your word. Pray that you would grant us the opportunity and grant us the ability to truly understand the goodness of God despite the on-pressing and presence of evil. Lord, we thank you, God, that we are a people who are hungry to receive from you. So, Father, would you feed us now your word? As always, Lord, I ask that you would take my little, make much of it. You would glorify yourself as only you can. May so soul be saved. May so mind be transformed for the advancement of your kingdom. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. In your program, you have kind of the outline that we're looking at today, so feel free to follow along um, in there. But one of the quick themes that we see from the very onset as we look at Matthew chapter 4 is this question. If God is good, why does evil prevail? If God is good, then why does evil prevail? This has been talked about many times throughout the scriptures um, and also in theological discussions. And one of the best places that I've seen this, this question being um, discussed and being um, talked about is actually found in Psalm 73. In Psalm 73, it's a song of, um, it's not a song of David, but it's a song of Asphah. And in this psalm, he says these words. He says, God is indeed good to Israel, to the pure in heart. But as for me, my feet almost slipped, my steps almost went astray, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have an, they have an easy time until they die, and their bodies are well fed. They are not in trouble like others. They are not afflicted like most people. Therefore, pride is their necklace, and violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge out from fatness, and the imaginations of their hearts run wild. They mock, and they speak maliciously. They arrogantly threaten, threaten opposition. They set their mouths against heaven, and their tongues strut across the earth. Therefore, his people turn to them and drink in their overflowing words. The wicked say, how can God know? The, the Most High know everything? Look at them, the wicked they are always at ease, and they increase their wealth. I don't know about you, but during times in my life, I've often felt similarly. Is that the, it seems like those who don't walk with God or those who are in opposition to God or those who don't even believe in God, it seems like they just have an easier way of life. It seems like they have an easier way of living. It seems like they have, honestly, at times it seems like they have um, the best thing going for themselves. Listen to the words in verse 13 of Asaph. He says, did I purify my heart and wash my hands in innocence for nothing? He says, for I inflicted 
all day long and punished every morning. If I decided to say these words aloud, I would have betrayed your people. When I tried to understand all of this, it seemed hopeless. But verse 17 is a turning point. He says, until I entered God's sanctuary, then I understood their destiny. Indeed, you put them in slippery places. You make them fall into ruin. How suddenly they become a desolation. They come to an end, swift away by terrors, like one walking from a dream. Lord, when rising, you will despise their image. And there it is. You have this aspect of dealing and struggling with this aspect of the problem and evil. Understanding and acknowledging what it seems to be before his face. That those who don't believe in God and those who don't walk with God seem like they have an easier role. He says, but verse 17, until I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their demise. You see, there is three problems with evil and sin that we want to talk about here in this passage. And those are simply this. One is that this, sin will keep you longer than you want to stay. Sin will always keep you longer than you want to stay. And instead of being a servant of God, you end up being a slave to sin. We're going to see that in our text today. The second problem with evil is this, is that sin will take you farther than you're willing to go. It doesn't have a stop button. It it is an escalator to destruction, if you will. And it will always take you to the point farther than you're willing to go. Thirdly, sin will lead you against God, and sin will lead you against your own convictions. This is the aspect, and this is the problem of evil. And as we go into our text, what I want to do is I want to compare what it means to walk with God through the image and the likeness and the character of John the Baptist with the image of Herod, which is of sin and destruction and lustfulness. But before we go back in our text, let's remember where we are. Jesus gave us a great parable of the sower. Remember that parable in Matthew 13? In Matthew 13, he gave us three types of soil. He gave us the soil that was on the wayside. He gave us the soil that was from rocky ground. He gave us the soil of thorny grounds, and he also gave us finally the good soil. And in this passage of scripture, what we're going to see is we're going to see those four types of soul being manifested through the scriptures. Remember the wayside? The wayside was those seeds that were spread out, but the birds quickly came and devoured them. So there was no germination. There was no even activity of the soul, the seed becoming anything more than just a seed. And that's represented last week in Jesus' rejection at Nazareth. And it also will be manifested today within King's Herod and the story that we're about to get into. Remember the rocky soil, the the soil that that, that, that didn't have any depth to it? It it, it, it started to kind of go down, but because it had no depth to it, it couldn't last long. That's going to be manifested in the next couple of weeks in the feeding of the 5,000 and 4,000. Those who see God and pursue God, but... They don't last long with him because it's more about being fed and the blessings of God than God himself. Remember the, 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 thorny, the thorny soil, the, the, the soil that, was, uh, that, that actually started to grow, but because of the cares of the world, because of the thorns of this life, it, it choked out the word and it became unfruitful. That's represented at the end of the book in Judas. 
that Judas actually was a man who did miracles of God and who did things of God. But because he was surrounded by the things of this world, it choked out any fruitfulness that he could have into eternity. And then last, definitely, but not least, we see the good soil. We see the good soil with Jesus and his disciples. We also see good soil with John the Baptist. Look with me again in verses 1 through 4, and let's contrast here John's godly works versus Herod's weakness. Notice what it says. It says, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus. This is John the Baptist, he told his servants. He has been raised from the dead, and that's why miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had arrested John, chained him, and put him in prison on account of Herodias, his his brother Philip's wife, since John had been telling him, it's not lawful for you to have her. Notice a couple of things here. Verses 3 through 12 is pretty much a flashback. You know, in a good movie where a person is talking about something in the movie, and then they have to kind of go to this pixelated scene, and then flashes back to another scene that predates that scene. That's exactly what's happening right here with Herod. Herod is hearing about the words and the things and the reports of Jesus. He's hearing about it because, listen to his word, Herod the Tetrarch. Tetrarch just means a fourth of the kingdom. His father, King Herod, was from Matthew chapter 2, who was the one who put an assassination on all the babies in the, in, in, um, in the, the, the Jewish kingdom at that time, the, the Jewish nation. He went to Israel to kill those babies because he knew or he heard that a king, a new king, had been born. So Herod comes, Herod the Tetrarch comes from a family um, of assassins and even murderers himself. Herod the Tetrarch, he, after his father died, his kingdom, King Herod's kingdom in Matthew 2 was divided into four kingdoms, actually three kingdoms. And it was, it was divided between uh, Archelaus, Philip, and Herod. And Herod had the region and was responsible for the region that Jesus was a part of. Remember the first problem of evil that we talked about, that sin will keep you longer than you want to say, stay? This is what we see in King Herod. This is what we see in him in this passage. Because although King Herod had killed John, he could not deny God, John's character, and he could not stop God's word. Amen? You see, John was in prison, yet the word of God continued. Oh, this is such a good encouragement for our souls, that God's word isn't just dependent upon you, but God's word is dependent upon him. Amen? I love what Psalm 119 says about the word of God. Psalm 119, 89 says this, that Lord, your word is forever. It is firmly fixed in heaven. Listen to what Isaiah 55 says about God's word. It says, for as rain and snow fall from heaven and do not return there without saturating the earth and making it germinate and, and sprout and providing seed to sow and food to eat, so my word that comes from my mouth will not return to me empty but it will accomplish what I please and it will prosper in what I sent it to do. Isaiah 48 continues this theme by saying this, that the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord remains forever. 
Isaiah 56.10 says it this way. It says, I declare the end from the beginning and from long ago to what, what is not yet done, saying, my plan will take place and I will do all my will. This is a good reminder that man can stop life, but man can't stop God's word. Notice not just the inability to stop God's word. Also notice what happens when God's words hit your conscience. You see, Herod had a guilty conscience. In Mark chapter 6, verse 20, he talks, Mark talks about this in much more detail. Listen to what it says in Mark 6, 20 about Herod. It said, because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing he was a righteous and holy man, when Herod heard him, he would be very perplexed, and yet he liked to listen to him. You see, Herod was not just a man who was just going against the grain. Herod was a man who was hearing the word and being perplexed by the word, but he didn't want to follow Jesus, the word of life. We have a lot of those people here still today, even among the congregation. You come to church week to week. You've probably been a part of church all your life. You can quote scripture better than maybe the pastor himself but you're not willing to follow the word of life. You follow a Bible study. You follow Bible teaching. You know theology in and out, but you're not following the word of life. And because of that, Herod's conscience gets guilty. He gets guilty for two reasons. One, because he imprisoned and killed a prophet of God. He knew what he did. He didn't do it by mistake. He did it on purpose. He imprisoned and killed and eventually killed a prophet of the most high God. But not only that, he had a guilty conscience because he continued to live an unrepentant life before God. You see, each time he heard John the Baptist preach, he would get convicted. And he would have sorrow about his sin, but he would do nothing to change it. He would have worldly sorrow, but not godly sorrow. This is a good reminder that fear exposes our insecurity. That the basic cause of fear is insecurity. And what we need to do with those insecurities is not live with them and allow us to live with the guilty conscience but to give that, that, that guilt and see that guilt being redeemed at the cross of Jesus and through the empty tomb of his resurrection. Amen? I love this because if I could title this, I would call it The Young, The Restless, and The Romans. This is messed up. You can't write a better soap opera than this. Herod, who is the son of King Herod, he has three brothers. Philip is his half-brother, and tradition tells us that Herod went to Rome with his own wife, excuse me, apart from his own wife, and he went to go be with his brother Philip, and when he went to meet with his brother Philip, guess who he saw? Herodias. And he said, mm, she looked good. <laughs> I don't want to go home alone. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to convince her to leave my half-brother and come be with me in my kingdom. And that's exactly what he did. But that's not where <laughs> the tragedy ends because Herodias is not just some woman. Herodias is actually the granddaughter of King Herod. 
So this is actually his niece that he's taking from his brother who was married to her uncle, who divorced her uncle to be married back to another uncle. Can't buy, you, I'm telling you, you can't write anything better than this. It's a mess. It's a mess. But notice John's godliness and John's witness. You see, John saw this mess. And so did all of the nation. Everyone knew what was going on. But John was the only one who was willing to speak up against it. You see, when you walk with God, you have to work for God. <laughs> it's not just saying, I'm, God, I'm on your team. God, I, I'm, I'm with you. But I'm not willing to do for you or to speak up for you in this situation. John was willing to risk his life. He was willing to risk his reputation. He was willing to stand up and speak out against the sin that was being presented in the lifestyle and the dysfunction from this dysfunctional family. And it's a good reminder for us that people need to be know, they need to be told what is right and wrong. People need to know what's lawful and what's unlawful. You see, John was faithful to God despite Herod's power and despite his influence. And one of the things that I so appreciate about our brother John is that no one, he, he, he recognizes this so important point that we often, even in our present day, we forget about that no one is above the law of God, that the law is for all men. What's right for the poor, the weak, and the lowly is right for the wealthy, the strong, and even the king himself. And God expects his word to be kept by all. And John was willing to speak out when others were not willing, were willing to remain silent. It's a good reminder for us that people who break God's law should be told of their, their, their violation. I love what it says here. Look with me in verse 3, I believe it is, or verse 4. It says, John had been telling him, it's not lawful for you to have her. It's not lawful. See, the servant of God is faithful. It's to be faithful to preach the word even against wrong. I love how 2 Timothy chapter 4 puts it this way. It says, preach the word to every pastor, every preacher, every minister of the gospel. It says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Rebuke, correct, and encourage with great patience and teaching. In church, I'll say this publicly and even now. Listen, you should not leave here happy every Sunday. <laughs> you shouldn't. It's okay. I, I see sometimes, you know, after, after a, a preach sermon, you avoid me or you don't want to tell me, good job, pastor. That's okay. It's all right. Because the, the word tells me to preach the word in season and out of season, when they want to hear it and when they don't, when I feel up to it, when I don't. I'm not here to make you happy in that way. You shouldn't leave here happy every Sunday. There should be some conviction. There should be some wrestling in your heart. You should be upset sometimes, not all the time. 
But here's another reality. You should not leave here every Sunday defeated. As much as you should not leave here happy every Sunday, you also should not have to leave here defeated every Sunday. And the reason why I'm putting a pause here is because there is something out in this world that I want to address right now. There is a counterfeit courage that is in our world today. And we have pastors and we have ministers who under the facade of calling everything out live under this counterfeit this counterfeit courage. I love what Pastor Tim Keller has to say about this. He says this. He says, beware of counterfeit courage. By this, I mean that some pastors, while claiming to have the courage of their convictions, are actually practicing a false courage that alienates. They seem to relish confrontation. They may even preach on unpopular subjects regularly and with flair. They they seldom shrink from telling someone he or she is in the wrong. But many of these pastors have a large back door of people who feel abused and who have left the church. When this becomes a regular occurrence, the courage may may really be a form of pastoral pride and thus their um, their ministry alienates. True courage, born of the gospel, neither relishes conflict nor avoids it. A person secure in Christ does not need to win arguments or please others for his personal assurance. While it is true that godly courage may result in people complaining or leaving the church, there should not be a steady stream of such people. So if no one ever leaves your church, or conversely, if a lot of people do, you are probably lacking in pastoral courage. (laughs) I love that. I love that. Yeah, there's a counterfeit courage that's out here. I love, and, and, and this is how your pastor, let me tell you how I define courage. Courage is this, it's putting your own needs before, it's putting others' needs before your own. It's simply putting others' needs before your own. It's simply love in action. Philippians 2 verses 3 and 4 points it out this way. It says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not only out for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And the opposite of being, uh, having courage is being cowardice. And this is how I define cowardice. Cowardice is simply putting your needs before others' needs. It's love without, it's action without love. It's action without love. So here we see God's, God, uh, John's godly works versus Herod's weaknesses in verses 1 through 4. In verses 5 through 8, we see God's godly witness, John's godly witness versus Herod's wickedness. Look with me in those verses. It says, verse 5, though Herod wanted to kill John, he feared the crowd since they regarded John as a prophet. When Herod's birthday celebration came, Herodias' daughter danced before them and pleased Herod. So he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she answered, give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter. So remember the first problem of evil was this, that sin will keep you longer than you want to stay. The second problem of evil is manifested in these verses. Sin will take you farther than you're willing to go. Notice with me how John was godly and he lived for God by living a controlled life full of the spirit and undeniably godly. But also notice with me how Herod was foolish and full of lust. 
He was carnal, fleshly, and secular in everything he did. He allowed his stepdaughter to expose herself before him and other gaping men. Now, the stepdaughter is not his daughter. The stepdaughter is um, Herodias and Philip's, came from Herodias and Philip's marriage. Her name, by tradition, it's not here, but in tradition, her name is being named to be Salome. And Salome was a young girl. She was probably about 12 to 14 years old. And notice Herod's wickedness. He decides to have a birthday celebration, which is a good thing. But he wanted to be turned up and turned out in all the wrong ways. And he decided that he wanted to bring out his own daughter, to his own stepdaughter, excuse me, to dance before these men and before these guests. And he, she did in such a way that pleased Herod. Now, I'll leave that up to your imagination because I don't know exactly what that means. But I'm even afraid to even imagine what that means for his stepdaughter to please him with, her, with his dancing, with her dancing. It reminds us and shows us that sin will always take you farther than you're willing to go. And from his satisfaction, from his temporary satisfaction, from him being temporarily satisfied, he decides to give up all of his kingdom. Give, excuse me, he owns a promise giving away anything up to half of his kingdom. I love this old saying, me and my wife says it a lot growing up, is that sin makes you stupid. It does. It makes me stupid. I'll admit, when you're not in your right mind and you're following sin, it just makes you do illogical things that you just normally wouldn't do. This aspect of worldliness created an atmosphere. The thing, worldliness always creates an atmosphere around us. It creates an atmosphere for things to happen that ordinarily would not happen. This is the benefit, and this is the wonder of what it looks like to walk with and to love Jesus. Because unlike worldliness that creates an atmosphere for things to happen that ordinarily would not happen, when you're walking with God, <laughs> he creates an atmosphere for things to happen that ordinarily would not happen, but happen because of his, simply because of his grace and because of his mercy. And those things are called miracles. He allows those to happen amongst his presence. Hare's wickedness extended to his family, allowing his daughter to come and to dance and expose herself before his guests. His wickedness extended to even promising her up to have the kingdom and extended even up until the point of eventually him committing murder of John the Baptist. Remember this, that sin will always take you farther than you're willing to go. There's a one way expressed with sin and it goes from, from, it goes from sin um, to death to destruction. It goes so quickly and it happens so fast. Verses 9 and 10, we see John's godly wardship versus Herod's 
worldliness. In verses 9 through 10, it says, simply says this. It says this. It says, although the king regretted it, he commanded that it be granted because of his oaths and, and his guests. So he sent orders that John behead, be, be, be beheaded in prison. His head was brought on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. And I'll read verse 12 just for our hearing. Then his disciples came, removed the corpse, buried it, and went and reported to Jesus. So notice, notice, notice this comparison, contrasting between John the Baptist and also Herod. You see in the verses 1 through 4 of John's godly works and his reputation versus Herod's uh, weakness of fear and anxiety. 5 and 8, we see Herod's godly wit- uh, John's godly witness versus Herod's wickedness. And then verses 9 and 2, we see John's godly worship versus Herod's worldliness. See, John was God's servant, and therefore he was in God's hands. And for the Christian, this is a good reminder for all of us, that for the Christian, death is just a doorway to our faithful lover. See, John's death was God's will, and God was ready for his servant to come home unto him. How do I know that? Because, if, because God had allowed the death to happen. He was ready to bring his son home to be in his presence. To the world, John's death was a horrible and a timely and wasteful fate. But John's death, like every, like every Christian's death, is filled and perfect in the perfectly uh, fate of God. It's filled and perfectly with the eternal purposes of God, not just a worldly fate, but a godly fate. Is that for the Christian, we have a different outlook and perspective of what death brings. And even in Among Us, even as I talk to you right now, I can think of some people who've experienced death in the last month, month or two. And to you, I simply tell you this, that if your beloved one was a Christian, that they are far better off where they are now than if they were staying here suffering in this evil, broken world. That death is just a simply a doorway. It's a way in which we get to eternally rest and, and, and be rejuvenated within the presence and power of our God. I love how 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18 says about this, about our sufferings in this world. It says, for our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely and incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. The last thing that we want to know, looking at verses 11 and 12, is this, is that not only sin will keep you longer than you want to stay, not only will sin take you farther than you're willing to go, but lastly, sin will lead you against your convictions. Sin will lead you against your convictions. Look at this man, Herod. Herod, who had given this wonderful kingdom from his father. Herod, who had forsaken and taken away his his sister-in-law from his half-brother in marriage. Herod, who allowed his Herodias daughter, Solomon, to dance before gaping men. Herod, who promised an oath that he really didn't want to fulfill. Because verse 8 tells us that, verse, uh, excuse me, verse 9 says that although the king regretted it, killing John, he commanded that it be granted because of his oath and because of his guest. 
It's a good reminder for us that Herod regretted it, but being sorry is not good enough. Being sorry is not good enough. There must be repentance. That a person must not just feel sorry for their sin. They must not just be able to identify their sin. They must look to Jesus for forgiveness, but they need to walk towards him in total obedience under the power of the Holy Spirit in order to do what is right. Repentance is not just coming up to someone and hitting him in the face and saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You may be sorry for what you're doing and, and, and how it's affecting that person, but repentance is hitting someone understanding the pain that you've caused that person and then turning away and and walking away from what you've done in hopes and expectation that you won't do it again. It's not just turning away from sin. It's not just seeing sin for what it is. True repentance is turning from sin and turning towards God in faith and obedience under the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? There's a difference. There's a difference, fellas, with our wives. We can't just keep doing the same thing over and over again, saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And here's the thing about repentance. If repentance is truly have been, has been done, if repentance really has been, has been seen, then the other person should be able to feel it. And they should be able to identify it. And they should be able to experience your repentance. If your repentance is not experienced by someone else, it's not true repentance. You're just simply saying, I'm sorry. So husbands... How we deal with our wives, your wife can tell you if you truly repented. Not your I'm sorry's, wives. Your husbands can tell you if you truly repented. It's not just saying I'm sorry. It's turning away from that sin, turning away from that aspect or that behavior or that attitude and turning anew in your inability and in your frailty And in your dysfunction, you turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm a long way from where you want to be, but help me get there. (laughs) By your grace, help me. That's true repentance. I pray for us as a church that not only we will know this as head knowledge, but we'll practice it with our hands. We'll practice true repentance every day, all day, from now and until eternity. Because we live in a broken and fallen world. When I growing up, my mother used to always tell me, don't live in a glass house. You know what a glass house is? Glass house is a house that you feel in anything that anybody does to you, they throw a rock at your glass house and everything just shatters. Can't be Christians who live in a glass house because we live in a broken and fallen world. But we can be Christians who learn from our mistakes and who seek Jesus in the midst of our mistakes and our failures and our sin and to walk in true repentance so that the person that we offended can actually feel it. You see, King Herod not only beheaded John, but later in the gospel, you're going to see King, King Herod also is the one who condemns Jesus. And their blood is on his hands. And why is it on his hands? Because he lacks to repent. He had two of the greatest ministers, two of the greatest embodiments that the Bible has to offer. Jesus, the son of God, and John the Baptist, the forerunner of God for Jesus, and yet he still did not repent. 
That's how invasive, and that's how destructive, and that's how distortive sin can make us if we don't repent. May we be a people who love to repent and love to find joy, not just in saying I'm sorry, but in following Jesus despite our imperfections. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we do love you, and we thank you. We ask that you will go before us. Continue to conform us into the likeness and image of Jesus. Thank you for this great opportunity you've given us to preach your word and to be reminded of the benefits of walking with you. God, there's great blessing in following you. Forgive our hearts and our minds when we forsake or forget about those blessings. Grow us, Lord. Grow us, Father, in this way. As we come to this table to take communion, Father, I pray that you would help us not just to say, I'm sorry but to practice repentance even as we take this meal. That, Father, as we take this bread and we drink this wine, that it wouldn't just be a practice or a performance, but, Lord, it would be a petition to continue to walk in obedience so that the person who has been offended can feel the difference of us walking away from the sin that we have, uh, have done to them. Help us to be a church that does this well and regularly in Jesus' name, amen. This time we ask that you come and partake of the bread and the wine. And the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and said, eat, this is my body broken for you for the forgiveness of sin. And likewise, he took the cup, said, this is the cup of, my new co- of the new covenant, drink, um, drink as well. So we come as believers knowing that this is a symbol and a good reminder of what Jesus has done for us and offering us not just forgiveness, not just an opportunity to repent, but also reconciliation with him. If you're a believer here, come when you're ready. You're more than welcome to partake. If you're not a believer, you honor God simply by staying where you are. This meal is only for believers. Not, we're not trying to exclude you, but this is a meal that Jesus has specifically asked those who are following him in faith and obedience to come and to partake. So here our tradition at Sojourners to do this on a weekly basis, we ask that you come. If you're not a believer, if you do need to repent, we ask that you take that time. And I'm not just talking to unbelievers, I'm talking to believers as well. Take some time with the Lord right now and seek him and not just say, I'm sorry, but ask God to give you the strength to repent from the sins that so easily, so easily um, overtake us. Come when you're ready. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a church that is rooted in the community of South Louisville, and we are seeking to advance the gospel of Christ in South Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit SojournChurch.com backslash Carlisle, C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. God bless.